Judges chapter 2. See if I can get my head in the game here. Judges chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. And then we're going to read into chapter 3, verse 6. Please open your Bible or navigate on your device so that you can follow along. The topic, God tells the Israelites that they are living like harlots when they could be living like heroes. The title of our message, Yoho, Yoho, A Hero's Life for Me. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, as we encounter you in the word, we pray that you would reveal yourself. Reveal your love and your grace, your mercy, your compassion. Talk to us, Lord, about uh, all the things that you want for us and desire for us in terms of our maturity and growth and strength. Those that are weak, Lord, I pray that we would see that in our weakness we can be made strong. And those of us who think we're strong, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher as he's promised. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. Shiver me timbers, you haven't missed it. International Talk Like a Pirate Day is September 19th. In anticipation, I went to the online pirate name generator, put my name in to find my pirate name. My pirate name is John Bearded Beast Noon, the knave of flying fish sands. So that's how I'll be known throughout the month of September. Let's get it out of our system right now and utter a collective... We're fascinated by tales of pirates, all the more since the popularity of the Disney movies and Captain Jack Sparrow. When we think of pirates, our imagination flies to the Spanish Main or to the Caribbean, maybe even to Neverland. We all know it wasn't glamorous. Listen to this slice of pirate life just dealing with vermin. Vermin was a massive problem, especially when near land most ships were inhabited by mice and rats, which ran around below deck with impunity. Sometimes rats were caught and eaten as an alternative to tough salt beef or pork rations. Cockroaches were everywhere, also spiders such as tarantulas, various biting insects, and even snakes were brought aboard when the crew went ashore foraging for firewood. These creatures then came out of the crevices and hiding places amongst the kindling and spread throughout the ship. Inevitably, many men received serious bites as a result. Piracy, of course, refers to acts of violent crime committed at sea. It can also include on land and air. Have you ever heard the complete lyrics to A Pirate's Life for Me? Let me read it to you as a poem. We pillage and plunder, we rifle and loot. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot. We extort and pilfer, we filch and sack, maraud and embezzle and even hijack. We kindle and char and inflame and ignite. We burn up the city. We're really a fright. We're rascals. We're scoundrels, villains, and knaves. We're devils and black sheep. We're really bad eggs. We're beggars and blighters and ne'er-do-well cads. Aye, but we're loved by our mommies and dads. Our perception of piracy is a romantic fantasy. It's a terrible, destructive life that ruins both pirate and victim. The Tom Hanks film, Captain Phillips, gives a truer depiction of pirates. In the film's final scenes, you can't wait for the Navy SEALs to execute their orders and take those guys out with perfectly coordinated headshots. In the book of Judges, the children of Israel had a romantic fantasy of life among the Canaanite people. Their enemies ate whatever they wanted, 
They had lots of indiscriminate sex with the approval of their gods. They enjoyed gratuitous violence, and they seemed not to have a care in the world. In other words, they pillaged and plundered and were really bad eggs. Yo-ho, yo-ho, the Canaanite life for me was the Hebrew anthem. But like the pirate life, the Canaanite life wasn't all that it seemed. The Jews who pursued it were the ones left plundered and despoiled and distressed. God described them as harlots. We're going to read in verse 17, they played the harlot with other gods. Spiritually speaking, they were committing adultery against God. The Canaanite life was a harlot's life. Instead of a harlot's life, God intended his children to live a hero's life. And that's what we're going to see contrasted in these verses, harlots and heroes. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the harlot life leads you to ruin. And number two, the hero life leaves you at rest. Let's take a look at the harlot life first, in, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2. Now, because he depicted himself as their husband, when Israel worshipped idols, it was spiritual adultery. Notwithstanding the whimsical descriptions of harlots in movies and in Amsterdam, it's a life of being plundered and despoiled and distressed. And so we begin in verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The evil was deliberate. They compared the covenant God had made with them to the carnality of Canaan, and they preferred Canaan over their creator. We typically say they worshipped Baal, but that term is really a title meaning master or lord and is used of many different local deities. Baal was most often identified with the god of weather. The female companion of Baal was Ashtarte, whose plural form occurs in our text as Ashtoreths. Again, this term represented many local forms of the goddess, but it was most often identified with fertility. And so you have Baal, the god of the weather, and Astarte, the goddess of fertility. Baal and Astarte needed to have sex, and lots of it, in order for the Canaanites to be guaranteed good crops. Apparently, they were reluctant partners, and they needed coaxing. They were coaxed by watching Canaanites have sex, and lots of it. These orgies usually took place in elevated areas close to the clouds, hence they were called the high places, where the gods could better hear and better see the humans engaging in sex. One historian made the following observations. Canaanite worship was socially destructive. Its religious acts were pornographic and sick, seriously damaging to children, creating early impressions of deities with no interest in moral behavior. It tried to dignify, by the use of religious labels, depraved acts of bestiality and corruption. It had a low estimate of human life. It suggested that anything was permissible, promiscuity, murder, or anything else, in order to guarantee a good crop at harvest. It ignored the highest values both in the family and in the wider community. Love, loyalty, purity, peace, and security. And it encouraged the view that all these things were inferior to material prosperity, physical satisfaction, and human pleasure. A society where those things matter most is self-destructive. Also damaging to children was the practice the Bible calls walking through the fire, which is a reference to child sacrifice on the part of the Canaanites. They burned their children to death. Verse 12, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them. 
and they provoked the Lord to anger. They knew about God having been taught by their parents. Theirs was a willful, deliberate breaking of their upbringing in order to pursue other gods. It's no comfort to the parents of prodigals to tell them that it isn't their fault because it doesn't change the situation and their hearts remain broken. But it is true nonetheless. Your children must grow up and make their own decision to follow the Lord. The Canaanites were all around them because they had refused to conquer them and drive them out. You know that saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? It doesn't apply to your spiritual enemies. You don't want to be anywhere near your spiritual enemies. You want to stand against them and flee from them. Verse 13, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. This tells us specifically that they were engaging in the perverse sexual rituals whose purpose was to arouse Baal and Ashtarte. Verse 14, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Here's a language tidbit that's interesting. The word for anger in the Bible is the same word for nose or nostrils. The idea is that when someone is angry, their nostrils flare out. Think of the classic cartoon of the angry dragon breathing fire. And that's why we read of God in Psalm 18, verse 8, descriptively, smoke went up from his nostrils, uh, depicting the fact that he was angry. Now, I don't need to explain that God can be angry, do I? It's a righteous anger against sin on account of the destruction that it brings. God does not become angry because of the heat of the moment or because he possesses a constantly fluctuating personality. If Jesus was in the car with you, he wouldn't give in to road rage. That's not the kind of anger we're talking about. God's anger is rational. It's his direct, calculated response to sin. His anger also stems from what we call a holy jealousy. God is jealous over his people. If you're a Christian, he's jealous over you in a good way to keep you secure and spiritual. God had delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. It sounds harsh, but consider this. Those plunderers were there precisely because the Israelites refused to drive them out. Those enemies were there precisely because they failed to conquer them as they were commanded to. God let the consequences of their disobedience and sin run its natural course. And so they, they could have been free from all of this, but they chose the Canaanite life. And so God gave them the Canaanite life. In the New Testament, especially in the book of Romans, we read that God will give us over. If we desire certain things, he'll eventually give you what you want. First service, I was reminded of something that I don't think has ever happened. If it's happened to you, I, I'm sorry, but you, it's depicted in, in uh, film sometimes. And uh, it, it's when you catch your kid smoking. Uh, so you catch your kid smoking. And the, the, the technique, I think, coming out of the 50s and 60s was you make them smoke an entire pack of cigarettes in front of you. Or at least get them to the point where they're retching and stuff. And the idea is you want to smoke here? Smoke. And uh, it's supposed to cure them once and for all. I'm not advocating this, by the way, so just keep that to yourself. Don't anybody edit this portion of the thing and get it up on YouTube or anything like that. 
I see you right now thinking that. We're going to scrub this before it's too late. But anyway, so the, but the idea, that's an overkill, but that's the idea that, so, okay, you want to smoke? Smoke. You, you want to you, you, you do these things with the, the gods of the Canaanites? Okay, do them. Uh, and God gave them over uh, to the natural consequences of what they wanted to do. And so verse 15, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. They were defeated in all of their endeavors all of the time. Verse 20, then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice. Let's stop there for a minute, because it's interesting, God calls the Israelites this nation. It's the same way he would refer to any nation to all Gentile nations. He wasn't disowning them. He was emphasizing just how far they had transgressed. They were no different, no better. They were the same as all the other nations. If you were a visitor from outer space, you'd see no difference between a Jew and a Gentile living in Canaan. Christians have a reputation for being against things. Sooner or later, when you're in a conversation with someone, something will come up and they'll say, oh, but you can't do that, can you? And, and it, there's a, a whole list of things that Christians supposedly can't do. And, and then we specialize in things and let people think that we're more spiritual because we don't do things. Now, uh, we want to stand out from the world. We want to be careful that it doesn't turn into legalism, which is thinking that it makes me more spiritual. But if not because of things we are against, then certainly we want to stand out for things we are for. Things like mercy and love and peace. Things like compassion towards sinners. The hope of the Lord's coming. Those kinds of things. We need to be distinct from non-believers. And you would think that that would be possible and likely and normal uh, if you know the Lord and are walking with Him and are filled with the Holy Spirit. So verse 21, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Joshua had put the twelve tribes in a position strategically to finish the conquest. All the tribes together went into the land of Canaan, into the land of promise with Joshua, and they, uh, they cut the land in half, basically, uh, so that they could establish a base to go and, and finish the conquest. And then each tribe was given an inheritance, a, a group of land, and they were to go and conquer on their own. Each tribe was responsible for its own conquest. We read in chapter 1 how they fell short and they failed, every one of them. We see something here of God's foresight. He knew that the tribes would, for the next 300 years, repeat a cycle of rebellion, retribution, repentance, and then rest. He knew that after he delivered them, each time they would go right back into rebellion. It was to test them that he left the nations they had failed to expel. Tests have gotten a bad name. We generally don't like them, or we say they're not an accurate measure. But think of it this way. A while back I talked about what are called perishable skills. They are abilities that need regular reinforcement through training and testing. In law enforcement and the fire services, for example, they're the skills needed to do the job with excellence. The police and fire departments, therefore, provide ongoing training and testing for their personnel to keep them sharp. 
it's ill-advised to pass up perishable skills training and testing because it literally is a matter of life and death. It readies you and it keeps you sharp. When you're feeling tested, it's necessary to keep you sharp. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Joshua gave the order to finish the conquest. If there was fault to be found in his leadership, it was in believing that the tribes would execute his orders. This verse sounds a little melancholy to me. Joshua, when he gave that command, was old and advanced in years. In fact, it's interesting, I was looking at my old study and that, what God actually says to Joshua would be translated today, Joshua, you're a tore-up old man. And there's yet much to be conquered. And so Joshua gives his famous speech to encourage the children of Israel to do what they were supposed to do. Uh, but it seems here, little melancholy, he could probably tell that the tribes weren't zealous about finishing strong. Otherwise, they would have done it. Uh, jumping to chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Looking down through the generations and knowing they would transgress, the Lord exercised his providence over the nations to use them to test his people's perishable skills. Now, God's providence is him working within human history to accomplish his will, but without violating our free will. These nations would oppress the Jews, but it was their own bent to do so. God was not the author of their evil, but he could utilize them to discipline Israel while simultaneously calling upon those nations to turn to him. And so don't, don't ever get the impression that God in his sovereignty forces people to do evil things. The... Uh, Assyrians in the Old Testament, good example. They uh, were the people whose capital city was Nineveh. That's where Jonah was sent. You remember that story. And uh, they were terrible enemies of Israel. God raised them up and used them to judge his people, especially the northern kingdom of Israel, as they came and just decimated Samaria and the northern kingdom and took the uh, northern ten tribes captive. But at the same time, he sent Jonah down to Nineveh to preach the gospel. Jonah was reluctant to do so because he hated the Ninevites. And he knew that there was an opportunity that they might actually get saved. If you're a Hebrew, you don't want to see any saved Ninevite. The Assyrians were your mortal enemies. And you know the story. Jonah preached. Terrible preaching, by the way. It was. It was just awful. There was no message of hope. It just said, in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. End of message. And they said, hey, maybe if we repent, God will forgive us. And he did. And so when we read these stories and we say, oh, God raised up this nation to oppress Israel and his sovereignty. It wasn't that he was being evil. It's that he was uh, having the privilege of his providence, uh, accomplishing his will without violating our free will. Now, the Jews chose the Canaanite life, so he let them experience it, and that included being victimized by it. Many of you have been the victims of overindulging in the world. You've suffered terrible consequences from addictions, for example, uh, because you've, you've gotten farther and farther and farther into the world, 
and you you always thought you could stop whenever you wanted to, but it got worse and worse and worse until it became dominant in your life. Uh, and hopefully you found your way out of that through the power and grace of Jesus Christ. The author of Judges, we think Samuel, lists the nations in verse 3. It says, namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. The list is geographical. It points in all four directions, southeast, northeast, northwest, and southwest is where all these enemies were. They were therefore surrounded in such a way that there was no escape. Their only help would be from God. And so God set up the situation in leaving certain nations so that they would have to turn to him. Verse 4, And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they could obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded by their fathers by the hand of Moses. We talked quite a bit last time about the responsibility of each generation to know the Lord for themselves. And we said, and it's true, God has no grandchildren. And what we need to be about as Christians is being an example and evangelist to children. An example of Jesus Christ, of his love and his grace and his mercy, and evangelists telling the kids that they need to get saved. Uh, kids are cute, and they're wonderful, but you can tell they're sinners. They're, I, what I like about kids is they wear their sin right on their sleeve. They're just, they make no bones about their sin, and their rebellion, and their screaming, and their wickedness, and all of that. Uh, and it, it's a great opening for evangelism. And so evangelize your children. Don't assume they're Christians because you bring them to church and they go to Sunday school and they're part of your family. That's a terrible, terrible error and mistake. You need to personally encourage them to come to Christ. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hiphites, the Jebusites. We used to say the Adasites. That's never funny. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Have you ever gotten an F on a test? You probably haven't, but I have. Or maybe for an entire class. The twelve tribes flunked generation after generation for about three centuries from Joshua's death until the appointment of Saul as Israel's first king. The judges God raised up were the momentary exceptions to their failure. Their failure followed a progression that we see in these verses. First, they dwelt among their enemies rather than rising up to drive them out. Wait, you object. I thought God refused to drive them out. Well, true. God didn't allow them to be totally eradicated. But as we will see when the judges are introduced, the tribes could nevertheless have defeated their enemies and lived without their influence. And so God looked at them and he said, hey, you guys didn't drive them out. You're given over to idolatry, so I'm going to leave some of them here to test you. But having left them, we see when the judges are raised up, Israel defeats them. And they could have had them in constant defeat and constant conquering the entire time, not just during the lifetime of the judge. Then second, they took their daughters to be their wives, a thing strictly forbidden by God's law. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. If these ladies would have converted to Judaism, they would have been marriable. You need to think Ruth, for example, from this same time period, who was a Moabite 
but nevertheless married into Israel and eventually married Boaz and is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. God is not against what we sometimes call interracial marriage. By the way, as Christians, we believe there is one race, the human race, and that all of the different variations of it are mutations from our original parents. You realize that everyone came from Adam and Eve, don't you? They are all of our parents, every race, ethnicity, and people. And so there's no, there's no prohibition uh, for, in the Bible on interracial marriage, but what God says to you as a Christian and to me as a Christian, marry a believer. It doesn't matter what color their skin is uh, or what their ethnicity is or what country they come from, but you must marry a believer. That's the prohibition. Do not marry a non-believer. This never-to-be-converted-to-Judaism problem is explained in verse 6 when it says they served their gods. And so they intermarried, and because these ladies didn't convert, they converted the Israelites, and they began to go after these crazy idols and all these terrible practices and became spiritual harlots. And that brings us full circle back to the high places and these orgies. They played the harlot with other gods, verse 17. They chose to be harlots. Now, regarding ourselves and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, He depicts Himself as our heavenly bridegroom and we as His bride. We sang about that this morning. In the book of James, we're warned to not be spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. James says it happens if we're friendly with the world. Now, that's an interesting thing to meditate on. We see the Jews, I mean, they are in full-blown idolatry, buying tickets to the high places so that they can engage in some kind of weird sex practices in front of the non-existent Canaanite gods. I mean, they're gone. They're in the world totally. James says, as a Christian, don't even get too friendly with the world. Or we would say today, quit flirting with the things of the world. And I don't know what that is to you. I know what it is to me. Just let that sink in. Because we think, what I'm not doing this. I would never do that. I'm a Christian. I'm over here doing this. I'm looking at it. I'm thinking about it. I'm running it through my mind, knowing I would never do it. And so James says, yeah, don't get friendly. Don't get flirty with the world. And so the standard is higher for us. Just as I wrote that last sentence in my study, this quote from Charles Spurgeon was messaged to my phone. The superlative beauty of Jesus is all-attracting. It is not so much to be admired as it is to be loved. It was a reminder to me and to us that there's nothing, there's no one more beautiful than Jesus Christ. Why would we go after the things of the world? Why would we flirt with the world when the Lord says He's given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places? when He is altogether lovely, when He has an everlasting love for us, when He saved us and delivered us and promises to do so over and over again, even if we fail. And so it's a matter of really getting our head in the game and remembering that what we tell everybody else, right? What do we tell people about Christianity? It's not a religion, it's a relationship. But we often, even as Christians, fall into it as a religion, thinking that as long as we do certain things, then we're going to be okay. And it's who we are that the Lord is interested in. It's our heart, and whether it's filled with His love or not. 
we used to sing, I keep falling in love with him over and over and over and over again. Remember, who remembers that old chorus from the way back time? Remember the way back machine? But anyway, I mean, that goes way back. I keep falling in love with him over and over and over and over again. It's a great anthem for the Christian life because Jesus' love will never wane for us. It's always just as strong as it was in eternity past through eternity future. But we know that our love can grow cold. We can leave our first love. And then the Lord comes to us and he says, remember your first love. Repent of whatever it is you need to change from and return and do your first works. Return to your first love. Have any of us strayed? Then we just need to return. That's the message from this first section of the book. Now, verse uh, 16 through 19, the hero life leaves you at rest. Chapter 2 and the first few verses of chapter 3 are really a preview of things to come in the following pages of Judges. They read like a summary, uh, or a preface actually, I should say, of what we're going to see in greater detail. Israel would constantly fail, but under God's loving discipline, they would cry out to help, to God for help, rather. And although they didn't deserve it, he always heard and heeded their cries. And he did it by raising up judges. Each time they were in trouble and they cried out to him, he would raise up a judge. Now, we think of a judge in a courtroom. These are more, for lack of a better word, they were more military leaders. But even that's not a good uh, designation because... They didn't really have military training. They weren't going to, you know, military colleges and learning strategies. And even if they did, they wouldn't have done any of the crazy things that God had them do to deliver his people. And that's why a better word and a more accurate translation for us is the word hero. Somebody who rose to the occasion and did what the Lord asked them to do. Each time God would raise up a hero who he would empower to overpower Israel's enemies and deliver them. And the kind of the sub-theme of our teaching here throughout the book of Judges is this. Any Israelite, man or woman, could have been one of the judges. In fact, we'll see that all of them should have been heroes of the faith. God expected every Israelite in every tribe to go forth into their territory and to conquer the way the heroes did. He expected all of them to be like Caleb, who even as a super old guy said, I'm going to go into my inheritance, I'm going to defeat the giants, I'm going to throw them out and eradicate them. And he did it, and he went for it. So we need to quit thinking that the judges are super spiritual, And just remember that they were simply available. Let's read the next few verses with all of that in mind. Verse 16, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Nevertheless sounds almost nonchalant. And that's what makes it full of meaning. Uh, First of all, despite their not deserving it, nevertheless, God delivered them. It just, when, when, it's incredible, when he raises up the judge... The things that seem so impossible are quickly rectified. You can't earn God's help, but if you're his child, you can expect it. And then second, no matter what your plight is, nevertheless, God can easily deliver you from it. His power to save is legendary. It's on display throughout the Bible, starting in the Garden of Eden and working its way all the way through to the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Adam and Eve, in a perfect state, sin, 
and throw the entire universe into chaos, into everything that we see happening around us in terms of disease and darkness and destruction and disaster. I mean, that's, that's serious stuff. And then God comes into the garden in the afternoon. He calls for them and he says, what have you guys done? They lie to him. Blame each other. Blame the devil. And God says, okay, good thing for you. I've got a plan. I've got a plan to deliver you and to deliver all of creation and to bring us back to the state that we need to be. And that's what you see, this unfolding drama of redemption throughout the Bible until the creation of the new heaven and new earth in the New Testament, future to us. And so it's God is able to deliver story after story after story. You, you see his delivering hand. Now, having said those things and knowing them to be true, I pause for a moment because I realize that I struggle with why I am sometimes surrounded still by suffering or sorrow, trouble or trial. It seems like my distresses or those of the people I love are not relieved or renewed. I mean, on the one hand, I see that, that God loves me and he can't not deliver me and he has the power to do it, but it doesn't seem like he's doing it. It's because sometimes God delivers me through my circumstances, not from them. He wants to empower me to represent him in the midst of my pain. And that is a much harder thing, not for God, but for me. I, don't know, I think all of us know that God could heal us of any disease. He could take care of any problem in our lives before we even snap our fingers. Why doesn't he? Because then no one would see that he is faithful. No one would see that he is merciful. No one would see that he is gracious. They would just see that he is spoiling us. Remember I said that there's no spiritual grandchildren. That means God is not a grandfather. Grandfathers and grandmothers spoil their grandchildren. They don't care anything about discipline. Oh, you burned down the house? Oh, well, there are other houses. Have some chocolate. You know who cares about discipline? Parents. That's who cares about discipline. And, and also, uh, God needs to be on display to a lost and dying world. And we've established what, from the time of Jesus and the life of Jesus that you could, we could go down right now and go through floor by floor Adventist health and heal every person in there and by the power of God, if God would allow that. And I don't think it would make a, a bit of difference in terms of people coming to know Jesus Christ. And I can say that with some confidence because there were so few believers at the end of Jesus' remarkable ministry where he essentially did just that. He healed everybody of amazing diseases and incredible things. Sometimes he did it by touching them. Sometimes it was with a word. Sometimes he just did it from a distance. He cast demons out of people by the thousands not just thousands of people with demons, but thousands of demons in people. The religious leader said, here's a guy we got to kill. We need to put this guy to death. And everybody fled at his crucifixion except a few believers. And on the day of Pentecost, there's 120 people in the upper room. Not a very successful ministry. Qualifying certainly as one of the smaller churches. And so... 
Those things are easy for God. He shows you. He says, hey, I could do this right now, but you know what? I'm not going to. If I'm not doing it, it's because I'm not going to. You know why? Because it's necessary. You know who it's necessary for? It's necessary for you and for those around you. And I have to rest in that. Job is the quintessential example of suffering. Anybody in the, you know, in the English-speaking world, for sure, you say, who's, who's the example of suffering that you... Oh, Job. Scholars estimate his period of being afflicted with boils and such lasted a few months. Let's say four months, I think, is the figure they throw out based on some chronological clues in the text. Then he was delivered, and the Bible says that what he had lost was restored twice as much as he had before. Wow. And so I tend to think of Job as a guy who went through four months of suffering, albeit really nasty suffering. I, I don't want to be scraping boils on an ash heap. But then God restores him, and he has all this incredible fortune. But I think we need to be better observers of suffering. Let me ask you this. The loss of his children at the very beginning of that story, did that pain only last four months? Was he through with that pain after God restored him physically and gave him more children? Would you tell someone who had just lost a child it's going to be okay because they can have more children or that they have additional children and that it's no big deal? No. Well, I hope you wouldn't say that. I've heard people say that. Just a, and, and I say this to myself. Don't underestimate how stupid you can be when people are suffering. I'm serious. You want to help so bad. I've said some incredibly stupid things myself. You want to help somebody so bad that you say something that is just... To, to be nice, I'm calling it stupid, but it's actually cruel. And so let's be realistic about Job. We're not denigrating Job at all. God restored him, but he had some things that never changed. He never got those children back. And if you've lost a child, you know that that's a pain that never goes away. Regardless of my circumstances, I am God's hero. I am God's Job. And I should choose the hero life of standing on his promises in the midst of my storm, giving testimony to his faithfulness. Let's close out the verses. Verse 17, Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead, they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. They looked to the Lord to raise up judges, and that was great, but they could have looked to the Lord to live as a hero. The stories in the book of Judges aren't meant to teach us that there are only occasional super spiritual believers while most of us struggle to barely make it through each day. When we get to Samson, you're going to try and figure out if he's even saved, quite honestly. You're going to think, how? You know, God didn't find Samson because he was on his knees in prayer, but he nevertheless raised him up. And you look at a guy like Samson and you think, well, God can for sure use me if he can use Samson. Or, in a more contemporary example, if, if God could raise up Gene to be a pastor, he could do almost anything with me. 
I mean, get into it. I'm, I'm pretty serious, if you only knew. Each of us is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. We are each commanded to go on being filled with that Spirit. And the power to serve the Lord with boldness by the Spirit is renewable every day. And so everything that God has ever done through these judges or in the New Testament, it's available to us. Our inheritance, our territory, it isn't land in Canaan or anywhere else on the earth. Our enemies aren't Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. We war against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. There are spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places that are our enemies. Our territory is anywhere circumstances uh, bring us, wherever we find ourselves. We are to press forward in the power of the Spirit, giving testimony to the grace and mercy and faithfulness of our God. In those times, you seem more a zero than a hero. Be comforted by these words of Job that we close with. Think of the honesty of Job, talking about how he felt, as many of us feel, but how he understood at the same time, simultaneously, the absolute faithfulness of his God. Here it is, Job 23, 8-12. Look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. More often than not, that is going to be our testimony in suffering, in trouble, in trial. Not that I was healed, that I was delivered immediately, but that I stood my ground on the faithfulness of God, even when I couldn't see Him working in my life.